does that question even mean? Well, if you're a Christian, it means, how long have you been a Christian? Or at least in Christian culture, they're supposed to be synonymous. But let's be real, there has been a lot of time in my own personal Christian life and walk, or whatever you want to call it, where I have been redeemed by Christ, but I wasn't serving God at all. I wasn't doing much for Him. I wasn't actually doing much with Him. And how good is our God that even though we all, I assume it's not just me, take Him for granted, I take His salvation for granted, I freeload off of His grace, He doesn't kick me to the curb, but He loves me. He graciously shows me that maybe I'm missing the point when it comes to my relationship with Him, because to know Christ, to love Christ, to be found in Christ also means that we serve Christ. Not because we have to, but because God has reordered our priorities in Him. Last week, we studied the salutation, the greeting that Paul had for Philemon, his wife, Philemon's wife, and another leader within Philemon's home church. Paul's greeting was sincere. It was thought out. It was affirming towards Philemon, the leader in this home church who has a faith that is bragged upon and is a defining feature of, Philemon had a defining feature of love for God's people. Today, we will study the beginning of Paul's culturally unorthodox request to Philemon about forgiving the debt of someone named Onesimus because Onesimus was a servant, a slave to Philemon. But Paul is going to ask him to forgive that debt based on the shared bond that they have in Christ. But not just the request. We don't just talk about the things we ought to do. We talk about the reasoning behind the things that we do and why Paul believes that this ask of Philemon should be accepted. So we're going to go way back to verse 1, okay? We're not going to study it again, but we're going to read verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to jump into verse 8. So here's what it says, Philemon 1, Paul a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all His holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Now on to verse 8. Paul continues, and he says, Therefore, Although in Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. Therefore. What do we say when we hear therefore? What is the therefore? Therefore. <laughs> because Philemon's reputation is a godly one. Because Philemon is marked by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity that Paul is, and because of that, there's an expectation of who Philemon holds most dearly. So who does Philemon hold most dearly? Jesus. What is Philemon's worldview because he's a Christian? The Scriptures. And how does he see other people? People created in God's image. And Paul could have been bold. He could have been forthright. He could have just pulled rank on Philemon. Oh, you're a pastor in a home church? Well, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I saw Jesus alive post-resurrection. How do you like me now? But he doesn't do that. That isn't what Paul does. He doesn't need to because he knows that Philemon, who is led by the same Holy Spirit that Paul is led by, has had his affections stirred for God and for his people, and this in Paul's mind is that opportunity for Philemon to act out this belief. 
I think we have expectations of people in the church. At least I do. Do you? Like there's an expectation we have. If someone self-identifies themselves as a Christian, but more times than not, and this might hurt a little bit, we come up with things that we expect from people that claim that they're Christians, not from what the Bible teaches, but from some old rituals that have been passed down for decades inside the church. It makes Christianity sound a lot more moralistic than it does gospel-centered. So, if someone lacks any kind of love or hates people or is violent towards others, these extremes are somewhat easy to diagnose. And yes, that's judging people. I don't think Christians are called to judge the heart because we can't see the heart, but actions get judged all the time, and how we behave comes out of our beliefs. So, judging does take place. But what I think we can do that is the most damaging in this is this weight we place upon other people who claim that they follow Jesus, and we expect them to follow certain rules that don't actually exist other than in our own minds that we willed to justify ourselves. We see this in the early church. There were Judaizers. Judaizers were these people that were preaching that you could become a Christian, but only once you had first become a Jew, and for a male, that meant circumcision. This became such a big deal in the early church that a council of elders and apostles were formed to discuss this matter, and I think it's relevant enough for us today that we're going to read it. And it's a long passage, so I don't want you to glaze over. I want you to be able to see the verses with me, and I'm going to read them to you, but, but immerse yourself in the story. Here's what it says in Acts 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this specific question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This, made all the, this news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter, of course it was Peter, got up and addressed them. Brothers, he said, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that He accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as He did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for He purified their hearts by faith. Now then, verse 10, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. So we're going to skip a little bit, but you've got these Jews, and there were uh, Judaizers, these people that had the Jewish customs, and there was a bit of trying to force Christianity into not just by faith through grace in Christ, but they wanted you to do something in order to be saved. And then James shows up. James is the half-brother of Jesus. I've got to assume James had some, you know, swagger when he showed up. He's the half-brother of Jesus. He speaks up in this meeting. He points to the book of Amos, and he quotes what the Lord has to say, and then he comes up with this judgment. So, we're going to skip to verse 19. James says, "'It is my judgment, therefore, 
that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Oh, how deep is that? Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meats of, meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Here's why I bring this up. Here's why we take a field trip from Philemon, because I want us to understand that expectations that exclude people from the kingdom that are not found in Scripture… It actually points out our judgmental heart to think that we earned grace. Man-made rules that exclude people from salvation is a really good definition of religion, where we expect people to do something to be saved rather than anyone in this room who has committed their lives to Jesus. It's because God in His sovereignty and grace made you understand who He was and drew you to Himself. The only thing, the only thing that excludes anyone from eternal life is to not believe in God's own Son. Christianity is a lot simpler than we make it sometimes. John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved, says it this way in 1 John 5.12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is not judgmental. This is a fact. In John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. It's not judging, it's fact. The most popular verse in all of the Bible sounds so great, but a lot of times we don't read it, continue to read, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That is why we have feelings of gratitude as we sing Mighty to Save. That is why I get teary-eyed when we sing, come to my rescue. He came to my rescue because why? Because He did it. And again, this is why we went on this field trip. Because if you are committed to Christ, then we trust the same God at His Word, and His Word points out what His Spirit does in us, how He sanctifies us, and how it's a process, but we're all pursuing the same perfect one together, church. We should never put a yoke that neither we or our ancestors could bear upon someone else around a person's neck to expect them to do something to be saved. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Can I get an Amen. And salvation comes to us. It's all God. We just participate in the receiving of this grace by walking in it, but God gives us His Spirit. He gives us His Word. He gives us His church to help us keep in step with Him. But I also want to point out as we come back to Philemon, if you're going to expect something from someone who self-identifies as a Christian, make sure that God speaks about it in His Word. And it isn't just some Christian cultural thing that you've picked up from others. To extend grace to people who don't act right, because sometimes God uses that to show us where our expectations of what acting right really are, is just man-made religion rather than what God really says in His Word. So again, back to verse 8. I promise you we'll get through a few verses at some point. Therefore, Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. Paul is not taking a stronghold approach, but look at what he points out in verse 9. 
Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He appeals to Philemon on the basis of love. Paul didn't want Philemon's begrudging submission. Paul wanted to speak to Philemon's commitment to Christ. This wasn't love or fandom for Paul the apostle. This was Christian love overflowing out because God first loved Philemon, and Paul understood that Philemon knew that. Paul could have demanded this. Instead of pointing to his own authority, Paul appeals to Philemon's commitment. Don't miss this. Because this seems to be an amazing commentary on how Christians ought to handle conflict. Have we ever had conflict within the church? Have you ever had conflict in the church? Please don't be a liar. Please raise your hand. Okay, thank you. Wow. Here's the problem. Not only do we not think in terms of commitments, but we also think more about getting what we want than thinking about the sanctification of ourselves and other people. If I want something done, I'm a boss. I'm a leader. My mentality is to just want to tell you to do something. But often, forget that I'm a leader or a pastor. I ought to want to help people see the gospel in their decisions. So when I get aggravated or expect something out of someone else just because it's inconvenienced me, I am missing out on the gospel opportunity to help them grow in their love and obedience to Christ. No commitment is a bigger deal than your commitment to Christ. There's no commitment. Not your marriage, not your parenting, your friendships, or your job. Nothing ought to supersede your commitment that when you receive Christ, following Him took precedence over every other relationship. That's why Jesus uses such strong language when He speaks of being His disciple. I, I use the softer one in Matthew 10, where He says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. We're not there, church, all of us. And grace means that we do not have to be there, but we ought to be progressing. We all, after time spent, years and years, the pursuit of Christ ought to stir our affections so much that our priorities ought to start to become more Christ-centered and less self-centered. And so Paul's addressing Philemon's commitment rather than exercising his own authority upon Philemon is spot on. Where this probably shouldn't be exercised is where I hear people in the church do it all the time. You ready? And it's in the church and not in the church. And I want you to raise your hand if anyone's ever said this to you. All right? Are you ready? You know, Christians aren't supposed to act like that. Okay. Just me and Eugene and Cyrene. Okay, good for us. No, there was more. See, that might be true. But generally, someone is attempting to slam others or justify themselves with that statement. So if you tend to do that, check your own heart before you go around trying to be the moral modification police, because that junk is not biblical. Everything in the world is attempting to mislead you from believing that the gospel of grace, that eternal life and heaven are based on God's goodness and not yours. It's why two weeks ago when we did VBS on this campus, and just wait, we got a video coming, not today, but you're going to see it soon. It was, it was a fun week. We wanted to instill in these kids not a sense of entitlement or even just fun, but the beauty of the gospel that Jesus is enough. Even when we, 
and we do this all the time, fall short of what we ought to do. Our final day at VBS, we read a story from the book of Acts which pointed me to a a passage in Titus that reads this way, Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So we needed to come up with a simple way to communicate this to children. We wanted children to have this truth, and we wanted it to be repeatable and clear. And so my wife and I, Erin, the children's director, we talked about what could we have people, what could we have these kids say? And she's like, well, they need hand motions. And I was like, they need what? And she's like, they need hand motions. And I was like, okay. And so I'm going to do it. Does, is anyone from VBS uh, have the guts to come up here and do it with me? Is anyone? Because I was going to call on Eliza and Evie, and they were both like, uh-uh, Eliza's not here, Evie's hanging out with children, so I get it. It's scary. Okay, I'll do it by myself. That's fine. Whatever. I got this. So here's what we came up with. Based on that verse, based on what we taught our children in this church, we said, God loves us. Can you do this? It's kind of like Wakanda forever. Thank you. Okay. God loves us and sent Jesus to save us, not because we are good, but because He is good. God loves us, sent Jesus to save us, not because we are good, but because He is good. Watching children say that, watching kids understand that. We had dinner with the Neathlings last night, and Jovi was like, I got it. God loves us. She was all about it. It was awesome. We're going to record it. We're just going to play it in service every week. It was so good. And I feel like I made that statement 10,000 times. And I don't, want to lose, I don't want it to lose its meaning, but I also want us to be reminded all of the time that the gospel isn't about us. It's about Jesus. And we're with Him. And that's what's so beautiful about the understanding that all of us who have been adopted into the kingdom, it wasn't because we were good enough or cute enough or doggone it, people liked us. It was because Jesus Christ is good enough and He drew us to Himself. And as long as we don't lose sight of that, we won't keep missing the opportunities, the gospel opportunities for people to choose grace, to choose Christ, to choose sanctification. Verse 9, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love, Paul says, it is none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ. Remember who's asking. This is Paul, someone who has ran the race, someone who's written most of the New Testament. He has fought the good fight. He puts it that way in 2 Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 4, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is a man who doesn't write much after this and goes to be with the Lord, and this is what the old man signifies. When Paul speaks about himself, it's to imply honor and respect because Paul has experienced much. This isn't old man, which is a theological term, which may mean that before Christ we had this person, this old man that we used to drag around, nor that he had become too old to be effective, but that he had accomplished a lot, but not he, but Christ in him. And that race, it required the Holy Spirit. That fight had to be with Jesus at the center to help him keep going. Christians, your faith is a marathon. Think about, could anyone run, I mean, let's be honest, could anyone run a marathon like today? All right. 
And so guess what? A marathon and your Christian faith, not your salvation, I want to diversify these two, your Christian faith is a marathon. It requires effort. Not your salvation, that's all God. But your relationship with God, your consistent walking with Him, it requires a lot of effort, it requires a lot of training, and let's just be real, as a runner, it requires a lot of pain, a lot of pain. And it's in that pain that God so graciously uses to mold and shape us. The people who have experienced more pain than others tend to not necessarily just be smarter or more eloquent, sometimes they are, but they are more experienced in God refining and conforming them into the likeness of Christ. God does not allow that pain to be useless in your life. And Christ knows pain. Think about how we tend to talk about the gospel. Like, it seems like half of the gospel is Jesus dying on the cross, hanging on a cross for the sins of men, women, and children like us. He was beaten. He was nailed. He was left hanging, fighting for breath. But the pain that was above all other pain was when Jesus, God's only Son, was disconnected from God the Father, and Jesus gave up His Spirit before the Holy Spirit in God's ordained plan resurrected Jesus from the grave. I love my God for a lot of reasons, but one of them is because my God took on pain for me. So Paul points out his reality that he is an elderly man, and how does he refer to himself for the second time in nine verses? He calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Why use that title twice in nine verses? Well, just a quick explanation. What we talk about most tends to be our emphasis. It tends to be the thing we think about most. And as Paul is going to ask that Philemon releases his slave, I believe that Paul is making the contrast of who is really his and Philemon's ultimate authority, it's Jesus Christ. I think that what Paul's intent of using this moniker twice in just nine verses really is, is to contrast the role that Philemon had with Onesimus. Because no matter what authority Philemon possessed or who was indebted to him, it paled in comparison to what Philemon owed the Lord. It paled in comparison to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. There's some important language here that like, let's be real, we've read this letter before and you just read through this. But man, there is so much to what Paul is trying to point out in this personal letter to Philemon. There's this important language that Paul uses here that I don't want us to skip over. Paul calls Onesimus his son twice in this one verse. Son implied given birth to, but obviously this was not physically because that obvious, it's obvious that Onesimus' age and stature, he was not a baby or a child. We don't know his exact age, but he was not a toddler. And Paul is referring to the fact that his ministry was used by God to see Onesimus become a follower of Jesus Christ. This was not through Paul's power or through Onesimus' strength, but a gift of grace in Jesus Christ. Let me read a verse. We've taught this. Back. Remember when we used to do John? We're going to finish it by the end of this year. I almost promise. Woo! But back when Carter was president, we said in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. 
a truth we talk a lot about, because Scripture talks a lot about this, is that God is the initiator in salvation. He's the one who initiates. Your relationship with Him was not because you willed it or it was because, God, it, it, because you really were good one day. It was because God opened our eyes to His beauty and salvation was given to us through the Lord. Look at what the psalmist says in Psalm 3.8. Salvation belongs to who? The Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. The truth is that none of us fully understand if we've become a Christian how it actually happened. But a good rule of thumb when it comes to God's Word and to the understanding of our relationship to God, is that God should always be exalted, not man. It's God who does it. And it's hard to go against the grain. It's hard to even think this way naturally because everything in this world, everything in media, everything you like today on, on Instagram possibly, everything that is commercialized seems to fight this way of thinking. We are taught we are the hero especially if we wear these clothes or we buy this product. We are told to be an army of one, that we should have it our way. Thanks, Burger King. That we, and then yet we wonder why society is so enamored with self. But the Bible paints a different worldview. It paints a different picture. It paints a picture of a sovereign and holy God who, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and gave people the opportunity to come into relationship with him, not through effort or will or the power of man, but through the grace, through love, and through faith, through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's all God. It's not us. And Paul also makes this statement. He became my son while I was in chains. Chains, being a prisoner, a slave, is a common theme so far in this letter. And while Paul has done all that he does, including being in prison for the cause of Christ, he also sees that his authority is Jesus Christ. So some of you, like in a sermon, you're like, give me the application. You ready? Get your pens out. Here we go. Paul is a willing prisoner, not of those who have imprisoned him. He is a willing prisoner under Jesus Christ. We talk a lot about identity at COV because, honestly, I think it's really the most relevant thing to our Christianity in 2021 or possibly forever because so many things are attempting to bide for our attention, to steal our identity. But what is happening here is because Paul has placed his identity in Christ, all that he does has Christ at the center. So if he's imprisoned, it's for Christ. If he's a tent maker, he's a tent maker for the Lord. And so I wonder if we have the opportunity to do the same thing ourselves. Are you a student? Yeah. Are you a student for Jesus Christ? Well, I'm an engineer. Well, now you're an engineer for the kingdom of God. I'm a stay-at-home mom. Great, you're a stay-at-home mom for the glory of the king. I'm Reagan, Lorelei, Evangeline, Boston, Finley. How many is that, five? Yeah, that's right. I'm their dad. But really, I am just the man that God has entrusted to help raise them in Him. That's what I've been entrusted. That is part of my service to God is to raise my kids to hear about the gospel, to talk about the gospel, to… I don't want them to just be moral, modified kids. I want them to love Jesus. And that's what I've been entrusted, to be a part of God drawing them to Himself. I want to take what I do and what I'm responsible for and be reminded that all that I have is because God has entrusted it to me. That's why we give our offerings. 
give of the money that we believe that we've earned. That's why we give of our time and community to serve. That's why God gave us our ability to earn income, and He gives us the time we have to live it for Him, because it's all His. So, speaking of Onesimus, Paul goes on to say this about to Philemon. Formerly, Onesimus was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and me. This isn't about Onesimus' worth as a worker or anything like that. Paul is pointing out that spiritually, Onesimus, before he was born again, before he was regenerate, before he was a believer, he was useless. But now, he has been drawn by God. He has fallen in love with Jesus. He has been born again through the Spirit of God and now is useful for a podcast, I'm doing quotes, is useful in the sense that he now, as a brother in the Lord, has been transformed and is an ambassador for Christ. Next week, we're going to hear more about this ask from Paul about the fact that Onesimus is a runaway slave and that Philemon could and should see him as a fellow brother rather than as a slave that owes him anything. But today I want us to leave with this. Here's what I want us to hear as a community. The gospel of Jesus, the reason we move and breathe and have our being is because God in his sovereignty has willed it and he has blessed us with our lives. He has blessed us with our jobs. He has blessed us with our schools and our families and our friends and our community. Everything you saw, breathed, or came in contact with this week is under the sovereignty of God. And we get to live this life. If redeemed by Christ, we get to serve Him. We get to run this race with the hope to finish well, with preparation in order to finish well. So as we conclude today, after some time in worship and connection with one another, may you leave today with a stronger sense of urgency to be what you are in Christ. May you leave with this sense of urgency to know that there are others that need to hear the gospel from you. I'm a pastor under Jesus Christ. You might be an engineer for the glory of God. You might be a stay-at-home mom or dad for your children because you serve Christ. But your identity is not in what you do, it's in who you serve. And if we as followers and ambassadors of Christ leave these walls with God's glory and fame on our minds, we will find purpose in our everyday lives because they aren't lived just for us. They are lived with eternity in mind as servants, slaves, prisoners, followers, and disciples of Jesus Christ. So we call this series Keeping It Real. So I'm going to be real every single week. Not that I haven't been generally always, but I'm just going to double down now. It's been a lot the past two weeks. I've been back from my sabbatical for two weeks, and maybe it's just because I found this new rhythm of being away on sabbatical for two months, but the speed and the amount of details and decisions that seem to be coming at this pace, I just wasn't ready for. I took last Monday off after working eight straight days, and some of you were like, oh, eight straight days, whatever, be quiet. But here's why it's difficult. As an elder and a pastor in this church, we are to watch over the soul's of those that are entrusted to us. That is one of the ways that myself and the other elders uniquely serve God here at COV. And this wasn't something we came up with. This is what the Scriptures teach us. In 1 Peter, Peter says to the church, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of the flock, of God's flock, that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, 
but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Peter, the apostle, points out a motivation to not be an elder and look over the flock for personal gain, but out of an eagerness to do so, not because it's always fun, but because it's an opportunity to serve God by serving His people. But the writer of Hebrews, he gives an exhortation to all of us. The writer of Hebrews points out to sheep, I'm a sheep, are you a sheep? And some of you are like, am I supposed to go, bah? Yeah, I'm a sheep. Hebrews 13, 17 puts it this way, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Having confidence in, the writer says, or trusting the leadership to stick to the Word of God, to make prayerful decisions based on the community of believers that God has entrusted us, to keep the gospel central as we preach and proclaim and share and equip us as a community to love God and love others. 18 months of COVID, 18 months of different types of isolation and differing ways of viewing the world, we've lost friends to moving because we're in the Bay Area, to sickness, to disagreement. We have seen the church have to shut down in person, start back up, keep on your mask, take off your mask, put your mask back on. It's crazy. But God doesn't ask of us what He didn't model Himself, which in Jesus Christ is obedience and faithfulness. Jesus was obedient unto death, Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and we as followers of His ought to die to ourselves and be lifted up in Christ. We haven't talked a lot about this in a while, but it's something that we discussed a lot in the past. God's economy is not the world's economy. He isn't interested in trying to be the coolest or trending on Twitter. God is faithful, and God's economy for His people is faithfulness because that's what the Spirit does in people. That is what the Holy Spirit produces, yet I am comforted by the fact that when I am faithless, my God is faithful, and He produces in His people a want to not only be more like Him, but He gives us opportunities to grow and be conformed in His image. So here's my question for you as I conclude, and I really promise I will conclude. How is God making you more faithful? Where are you not running from His discipline or from His rebuke? Where are you rooted and staying where you are because God has not released you yet? I want to finish well. I want to stand before my God knowing that I was faithful to His commands, but I also know that I make mistakes. I shrink back. I don't do what I intend to do, and yet there my God is, standing faithfully. Maturity isn't about having all the Bible answers or being the most moral. Maturity is a way of describing one's faithfulness. To not be tossed here and there by the new hip thing or gossip or fear, but to trust God at His Word, to trust those He allows to lead us, to trust God and His sovereignty over the circumstances He's placed you and I in, not because we've arrived, but because we get to continue to pursue Jesus in this life because God is faithful and we trust and obey Him. So where are you growing in faithfulness, church? Where are you serving? 
Where are you giving of your time and your treasures and your talents for the glory of God? Where are you doing this where it isn't easy, but you're continuing to do it because God is building endurance and faithfulness in you? We as a church are in a new phase of this community. We're opening back up. We're strategizing to reach out to our neighbors in and around this church building and campus and into our spheres of influence. We're opening up new opportunities to serve in community groups and children's ministry and tech ministry and worship ministry and outreach. Soon we'll be talking more about missions outside of this community, and yet all of that is not to get you to be more in. It's all avenues for each of us to be more faithful. So church, get excited because God's doing a work. And he wants to do more of a work in us. But guess what? It'll probably bring some pain. But God never allows that pain to go to waste. Malik, would you come up? And church, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. But I'm going to ask you to pray with me with somewhat of an expectation that you would pray the things that I'm saying to God and that God might mess with your priorities. He might mess with your business. He might mess with you to draw you to be more faithful to him. And so everybody close their eyes and bow their heads if you're comfortable. And if you're comfortable, would you just put your hands out like this? Just not because this is some magical thing that, you know, an elf is going to show up on your hands, but this is more of an opportunity to just say, Lord, I, I want to receive from you. And so, God, I ask you in this place today that you'd help us be more faithful that you'd give us the want and the eagerness to want to serve you even when it's hard, that we'd get excited about the fact that you're doing a work in us, and when we go through pain and go through struggles, that you use those to refine us and conform us to look more like your son. May we be gracious because you were gracious to us. May we love others because while we were still dead in our transgressions, you loved us with your life. God, help us be a people that care about the hurting world, and help us be a people that point people to the beauty of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great.